Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Stuart Crawford coming to you from a wintry Calgary, Alberta, in the uh, heart of the New West, as uh, our city uh, debates that slogan and want to spend, wants to spend a hundred or hundred thousand dollars on rebranding our city. Makes me wonder, shake our head sometimes. And uh, Steve and I will get into that uh, today. Uh, Stuart Crawford again, and we're on Small Business IT Radio, a weekly show for IT professionals across the globe who are looking at growing their business. Again, we had some talk this week with some of my colleagues about the content of the show, and you know, we got talking what's the purpose of what we're here, what we're doing, what we're doing this time, what we're investing this hour of our our weekend, uh, and what we want to achieve. It really comes down to you know providing some good business content for the IT professionals or the small business specialists out there who are just getting started or have been in business for a while, and we're going to keep on that focus. We had some talk about moving it to a technical-type show. And there's a lot of technical things out there. We want to focus on the business side of and then what we do and how we do our business. And we got a great show lined up today. We're going to kind of focus on project management and what we need to do to get our projects in, in line and what are some of the key deliverables we want to give to our clients and you know, overall what we want to do and how to roll up projects effectively uh, out there to make this, uh, you know, Increase our bottom line, and also, uh, you know, increase revenues. And that's, I guess that's what we're all in business for. So we're joined, We're going to be joined by Steve Holton here in a few minutes. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, project management. But a couple of quick announcements here. We are on BlogTalkRadio.com, and Blog Talk Radio is an awesome place to come if you want to start uh, podcasting and webcasting. You can set up a free account uh, in a matter of minutes and get uh, you know get your voice heard on the internet. Uh, some of the stats, we're averaging about 250 downloads a week of Small Business IT Radio. So we're doing pretty good. Our highest one, we had about 1,000 downloads of uh, the, some of the Small Business Server stuff we did. And we had some ones that don't perform as nearly as well. But you know what? At the end of it, we want to be consistent. We want to be persistent in getting our message out there. Uh, on a couple of great conferences coming up I want to remind you about, we do have next week, uh, starting on Thursday, the last day is today to register and get the, the $100 off promo code at smbsummit.com. And SMB Summit is a small business IT conference for IT professionals and small business specialists. One of the great things about uh, SMB Summit coming up is that there's two days of Windows uh, Server training around Small Business Server 2008 and Essential Business Server. This is the first time this is going to be offered. This is a great time for you to get out and get that competitive advantage in your marketplace over all those other guys who are sitting there just kind of wishing they had a successful business take the action now and get out there and, and register for this conference. Go to smbsummit.com. Use the promo code SMBWebcast to get 100 bucks off. And that expires to, tonight. I was told by Mike, the conference organizer, at 10 o'clock Pacific time this evening. That uh, special $100 off will expire. And I think last time I heard there was only about 30 or 40 spots left. So you need time to take some action. Further out, we do have SMB Nation Toronto coming up the, the weekend, the first weekend of May. You go to smbnation.com to register for that. I know Harry's uh, starting to actively uh, market that one for people out east and Canadian partners. Anyway, enough about the administration stuff. Let's get into the uh, meat and potatoes of our uh, program today. I'm, I want to invite a very good friend of mine. Uh, Steve Holt and I go way, way back. Steve and I served in the Canadian military together a number of years ago. We hosted a show here on Blog Talk Radio, and Steve was the person who inspired me to get on Blog Talk Radio, and we had Radop Talk on there, and that was a great show we did uh, last year. And Steve runs a project management consulting company out of Montreal, Quebec, 
and it's called Small C Consulting. I think that's uh, the still the name, Steve. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we're still Small C Consulting. Great. And we can get into the reason why that name in a few minutes here. But I want to introduce uh, Steve Holton uh, from Montreal. Good morning to, or good afternoon to you, Steve. How are things uh, with you? Things are doing great. Yeah. Uh, it looks like uh, for once uh, you guys are covered in snow, and we're the ones that are getting rid of it. So uh, that's kind of pleasing. Well, you know, we had, we had about uh, you know 28 centimeters of snow yesterday. It fell in about five hours, so it was a pretty dicey day. Yeah, but you guys get Chinooks. <laughs> well, exactly. So tell us a little about you, Steve. You know, what is your background? Uh, you know, I mentioned kind of gave a little bit of a preamble there about us being in the military together, but I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners here that have no idea who Steve Holton is because uh, you know I don't you know you're not a regular in, on our show, and you you know you definitely. Uh, in a different market, I know you work with some enterprise type uh, companies doing project management, but now getting into uh, the smaller mid market. So tell us a little bit about Steve Holton and what uh, what you do for uh, your clients. Sure. Uh, well, basically, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I, I started off originally in the military. Uh, did that for 12 years, uh, originally in the ranks, and later on became an officer. Uh, started in the combat arms, and then moved over to signals. So that's where I really got involved uh, aggressively in IT. A lot of different types of IT, you know, uh, you know, true information technology, whether that was the carrier over SATCOM, whether that was, you know, radio networks, computer networks, uh, all different systems, SATCOM and so on, and trying to make it all integrated. And it was that systems integration approach that uh, when I went to my uh, civilian career really helped me out a lot because that's where I started uh, uh, as, I, as I realized a lot of the planning and activities I did as, you know, as, a, as an Army signal officer in a lot of ways was very similar to the activities we do as project managers and systems integration and infrastructure project managers when we try to bring things together and, and make it ultimately work for e-business and, and technology for companies. Perfect. And I mean, that's, you know, and the military is always a good uh, foundation for a lot of things we do in uh, in the real world afterwards. Although, I think some of those experiences, some of those guys are having today are pretty realistic. Uh, in what we have here. Yeah, definitely. It's it's pretty nasty out there for a lot of them. But uh, you know, one of the things I found uh, when I got out is that uh, one, I undersold the skills I learned from there, and two, a lot of people didn't necessarily appreciate what I had. Uh, I, you know, this became very clear as I was listening, you know, to senior vice presidents muttering about, you know, not being able to handle teams, you know, direct reports of of eight eight people, whereas, you know, I'm thinking as an infantry section commander, wow, you know, I, you know, there were eight of us in a section, and you know, I managed that, and uh, it's those little lessons that you suddenly realize that uh, you know, you've picked up a lot of really important skills that uh, uh, you don't know how to communicate or, or, or other people won't necessarily recognize in you when you get out of the uh, when you get out of the military. One of the things I love about the military, Steve, is what they taught us was there's no such thing as over-communication. And I think that's kind of a, a misperception in today's world that, you know, that we don't communicate enough. Or those people that over-communicate, there's something wrong with them. And I think that's where a lot of what, you know, what projects that especially we're going to talk about today fall short. Because I think the, the fundamental um, flaw is a lot of people don't communicate effectively or they're afraid to over-communicate. How many times did we send sit reps into the regimental command post when we were doing uh, defensive tactics or, uh, or you know, um, advanced to contact drills? You know, you're on that radio, what, every few minutes giving situation reports, and the military taught us to over-communicate. And do you see that as a fundamental flaw in today's uh, project management world? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it as well is that in some ways, there is over over communication in the context of the sources of information and its raw data that's coming in. 
You know, like the people are constantly being bombarded with BlackBerry messages and the massive CCs that we see on emails. Uh, so there is elements of that where, where there's just too much to read. But on the other side of the coin, what I find is what we're really lacking is information management. And, and once again, going back to the military example, you know, we'd send sit reps and they were consolidated into situation reports for the next higher ups. And they would look at the information quickly, consolidate what was relevant, forward up and send out horizontally. And, uh, you know, what, what, no, where the military was having troubles is that, you know, if you were sending a sit rep that you're being overrun, usually the division headquarters, when they got that, got that report finally, uh, they knew that uh, you were successful in your in your in, in winning that fight because no one was standing in the command post to, with a pistol to your head. You know the enemy hadn't overrun the position yet, so they had a problem with velocity and, and speed of information. But they definitely had the information management aspect down. And I think what what we're really missing is that <clears throat> in that attempt to try and grasp information in business today, we confuse volume and channels of information as being equivalent to management. Of information, and and it really just takes a a bit of a cultural change more than a technological change, to uh, to to sort of pre-process uh, that 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 information is something meaningful to the people that you're actually sending it to, and I, I think that's the one area that's really killing us. And and once again, I think there are relevant lessons to be learned from the military in that regard. So that makes sense. So we have you know yeah, the military was great with the information management, and yeah, a little uh, struggle a little bit on the velocity. I think the civilian world, the world we work in today, is yeah, it's definitely opposite. When you only look at the amount, of the, the amount of blogs that are out there, you mentioned the amount of email that goes back and forth. Uh, you know, I just have to get in my car and tune on and turn on CNBC and get bombarded with an information on there about how badly the markets are doing or how good the markets are doing, and you know, information about Windows XP going end of life, and before I even hear about it through my vendors. So you know, there's a today's world. There's a lot of places to go for information, and it can become very easily become uh, information overload, and you got to kind of strip out what's important. So see, and, and, going, in, going into projects yeah. uh, and what you do on a daily basis. Sure. Well, what happened is uh, after I got out of the military, I, I was a director and I was a CIO at a couple organizations. Uh, you know, I, I sort of climbed the, the, the corporate ranks fairly quickly, and uh, I, w- I was blessed with a combination of the military training as well as also being dropped in, a, I won't name it, but a la- rather large Canadian railway uh, without naming them. National Railway, uh, that uh, uh, gave me a very quick education into corporate politics and corporate culture. And uh, I tell you, it was quite an eye-opening experience. Uh, but from that, uh, basically, I, I moved around to a couple different companies in civilian life trying to learn how to be a manager, how to be a director, when someone just asked me if I'd ever considered being a consultant. And, of course, I was a little bit scared of that prospect because you're always sort of going from one job to another. Uh, when they mentioned, however, the opportunity to be in Rio de Janeiro, I really couldn't resist. <laughs> so uh, after that, I basically uh, you know, went from Rio, came back to Canada, and I've been working with large organizations ever since. Um, oddly enough, on in many cases, small projects, even though they're large companies, small to, small to intermediate projects. So I've been working with the likes of Air Canada, as I've already mentioned, IBM, uh, the Central Bank of Canada, and uh, even most recently, I, I've been to places such as uh, Bermuda, working with a the bank there, and uh, with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission. So, yeah, your resume is quite extensive, uh, to say the least. So, Steve, in your travels, you know, and our and our show is geared towards the small to mid-sized IT consultants. You know, giving the information and the lessons that you have learned, 
what would you say are some of the common mistakes that you know professionals or consultants are making out there when it comes to managing projects or even starting the project management process? I think one of the biggest ones right from the onset is just clearly defining the scope and coupled with that very quickly is the actual planning process uh, that goes from taking the scope and actually developing developing it into a meaningful project plan. Um, uh, in nine times out of ten, what we end up seeing is the scope is very loosely defined. They plan on developing it on the fly. And, and that is acceptable in some situations, but you've got to have a pretty experienced team and an experienced project manager for that. So not defining exactly what you want and how you want it in the beginning is, is pretty much the uh, indication that the project is going to you know, expand incredibly in terms of budget and cost and delays. And then after that, it comes down to control, effective control. And, uh, you know, assuming you're capable of building a plan or even if you're using a rolling a wave approach where you're going to continue to sort of, you know, optimize or improve that plan or, or have it evolve, um, you, you've still got to manage, you know, three critical areas. Uh, you've got to have, you've got to manage the risk, you've got to manage change. And you've got to manage issues. And of course, th- those are the actual tangible logs that you've got. And of course, ultimately, project management itself is always a balance between time, cost, and quality while trying to keep the scope the same from whatever the last official um, approved version happens to be. And that's the sort of classic time, cost, quality triangle that project managers like to talk about. But, but the vehicle for doing that is still the risk, change, and issue logs. And they're the most basic tool, and yet I've been teaching, you know, project management courses here in Montreal, and I've been with companies that teach project management, and they never seem to talk about those three simple templates. So let's make sure we have those right, uh, Steve, those three templates. What were they? Risk, change, and? And issues. And issues. And, and to be quite honest, if you really had to for a small project, you can pour all of this stuff into an issues log. You know, you can manage it all from there. And uh, this actually ties into what I've been doing with my company is that as I've gone from place to place, even with large corporations, you know, they say, well, we're a project-driven organization. And I say, great. And the first question I ask is, where's your methodology? And either they present me with, you know, 8 to 12 inches thick worth of books on a bookshelf, which no one reads, or they turn around and they give me a copy of, you know, some sort of something for dummies book, and I'm going, no. Or the, the other situation, the third situation, is they'd grab uh, this other book called The Project Management Body of Knowledge, which comes from an organization called uh, Project Management Institute. And it is an exceptional framework that defines all the components and activities that would go in all types of project management, whether you're building a building, installing a server, planning a wedding. It is the definitive book that says, this is what project management is. And they say, this is our methodology. The problem with that is that it's not a method. It is, it's a framework that describes all the things that would go into a project methodology. And the way I like to describe it is, you know, giving someone a pinbox and saying, this is our methodology, is the equivalent of my walking up to you and handing you a dictionary and saying, there, this is a novel. Okay. And, and it's not the same. And, and a methodology, what's really important is that it says, here is all the activities that we do. This is who does them. Uh, this is how information flows from one person to another as we go through the cycle of managing the project regularly until we produce the final result. That's what a project methodology is. And it's amazing how these you know, project management for dummies or, or you know, uh, you know, uh, do a project in your spare time or what have you books don't have any of this kind of stuff. 
They often don't have these little tools like how to manage issues and risk, where they just talk about it. Like, you have to manage it. Well, yeah, we know have to, we have to manage it, but how do we manage it? And then, uh, you know, or, or alternatively, you get these huge methodologies that are all just you know checklists, but never really show you how you go from person to person. And you know, I, and that makes sense to me, Steve. I, I, I get that, and I want to kind of just take a time out for a second. I forgot to mention earlier in the show that we do have the dial-in numbers available for people that want to dial in and ask Steve a question at uh, area code 646-716-8372. I'll give that number again, 646-716-8372. And also the chat window is open at blogtalkradio.com slash fmb for those that want to uh, listen to us uh, on the Internet and also ask questions in the chat window. So we have both of those mechanisms open. So, Steve, I'm, I'm, I really certainly understand the importance of, you know, methodology and, you know, all these logs that we've got to do. But, you know, Steve, I'm a small uh, IT guy. I'm maybe one, uh, a one-person shop or I'm an, a software developer and I do consulting work on the side and I'm you know, trying to just manage, you know, myself, let alone managing projects. seems like a lot of stuff for a one-man show to do. Well, it can be. And, and this is why, you know, you grab... Let's assume for a minute that the PMBOK, this this book from PMI, really is a methodology. It, it would be throwing about 30-some-odd processes on top of you and saying, run with this, and theoretically a whole stack of documents with it. And uh, one of the things that I've been working on now for, I have to admit, almost six years, is taking this framework and breaking it down, first of all, into an actual methodology, but then the next most important step is to say, look, not, this doesn't apply to everything. Um, there's got to be some way of sizing a project or saying how, uh, um, you know, how, how, how big or how complex or how much governance is required to manage it. And, and what I've done is I've built a categorization scale that basically goes from zero through five, five being a big program, zero being essentially little more than a governed task. And it says, okay, given certain criteria that will help you determine what the category of a project should be, here's the minimum things we recommend you have. It's only the minimums. So, for instance, if we're dealing with essentially a minor task uh, that still has to be managed in a project framework, possibly because it's got capital costs associated with it or it's, uh, it's still critical to the business, such as, you know, replacement of the main firewall, that arguably could be something critical. In there, maybe all you have is an issue log. You've got, you know, a statement of work, an issues log, and some sort of testing plan, and that's all. But when it comes to something larger, where, say, you're going to build an e-commerce capability for the organization, including the provisioning and the payment processing, well, that might be a Category 3 project, you know, a, a real full project where you're going to have an issues log, you're going to have a proper scope statement, you're going to have a change log because you know there's going to be changes, and, and you're going to have risk management because, once again, when you start dealing with finances and payment processing and so on, things can go wrong, or if you have partnerships, things can go wrong. So there will be more processes involved and more documentation, and, and all I've tried to do in this framework is say, here's the minimum stuff, and here coming with this methodology are some simple tools and templates that you could use to help facilitate it. Because what's missing in a lot of these organizations is the methodology and the templates. Okay, and you know, one thing I'm, I'm hearing too here, Nick Steve, is you know, we really have to ha have the ability to begin with the end in mind and know where you want to get to, then work back uh, through your templates and through your processes and, and everything the way you do things. Uh, so you can you know you know where to start and you, and you know where to you know report you know and have your I guess lack of better terms when phase one stop and phase two begin 
And, and Is that what you're trying to tell me here? That's a really good point because there's actually two two sides to the project to the project like a coin. Uh, one side is the project management processes. How do we actually control the efforts and and monitor and manage them as we as we uh, as we as we as we work on the project? But the other side of that coin is the actual project life cycle. It's different from the project management cycle. The project life cycle that says this is how we take you know a, a, a mound of putty and eventually produce uh, you know a china doll. And that that also is there. So we've always got the two working together. And one is this life cycle that says, here's the evolution of the products or activities to produce the result, whereas the other one says, while we're making that result, and someone says, let's make it green instead of black, or let's make it slightly bigger. Um, you know, that's that's where the project management activities come in. And, and, and often those two don't get separated uh, in a lot of sort of ad hoc shops. And this is where uh, they can run into trouble because they're not thinking both in the context of, of the production activities as well as the management of the production team. So I want to talk about scope creep in a second here, Steve. I wrote it down so I can come back to it. Do you, but I have one quick other question here is, what would you sh- say to a small business IT professional who's a one-man shop and says, you know what? Steve, I know how to set up a small business server. I could do it in my sleep. I don't need project manage any do any project management. You know, I just know how to do this, and I'm just going to say no to my to my customer. Ah, it's three thousand dollars for me to install this. I mean, I've learned my lessons uh, in my seven years of running an IT business. We don't do things that way anymore because of a number of issues. But you know, what would you say to somebody, Steve, that they might say that to you? Well, you know, the nice thing is if you have structure in place, once it's there. Then you can choose to wa- you have waivers or bypass it, but not having any process at all and doing it by the seat of the pants uh, invariably uh, you know it, it's not too hard to find example after example, even probably within your own organization that it's gone wrong and uh, a bit of investment early on in terms of setting up at least the minimum tools for governance and once again, this goes back to my sort of categorization table that says here's the minimum things that you need. Uh, and, and it goes a long way to sort of giving you that protection. And once again, once it's there, once you've adopted it and you start thinking down that route, it's easy to either bypass it if you feel that you really don't need it, or alternatively, because it's already laid out, uh, run with it because everyone has a common vision or approach. And, and this gets back to the whole argument for having methodologies in the first place. Well, I know IT, per, IT professionals are are traditionally poor at doing any sort of documentation and we you know it, it comes down to the old hit by the bus syndrome is most of the stuff that in an IT professional have that's in their mind they rarely yep. write anything down and what I think I'm hearing from you is the the project management processes and the ways of doing things forces us to document uh, you know the steps because you know you can be hit by a bus and you're not yep. in things can happen uh, not even hit by a bus but you know you can become you, know, you want to go on a course, you want to go on vacation, you know, whatever happens, it's, it's, uh, there's a, you know, a lot of things that could happen. And, um, you know, what, I want to get back to this kind of scope creep because it kind of, all kind of ties in, and Steve, with some of the other things about managing expectations mm-hmm. for the, uh, for the people that you're dealing with. I, I just want to say, Stu, if you don't have anything clearly defined, scope creep can definitely set in, can it not? Oh, definitely, definitely. And even if it is clearly defined, if you don't have a process for managing changes or adjustment to the scope, uh, once again, it, it'll creep all on its own, even if it is properly defined. I just wanted to mention, we've got a question here in the uh, in the chat room as well. Yeah, I saw that. That's, uh, do you want to address that now? 
Sure, might as well take just a quick minute. Uh, it says, what do you do if you're a consultant on a project with terrible or non-existent project management and it's not under your control? Um, you know, th this this happens a lot where I go into organizations, they don't have any project management practices. Uh, I'm an independent consultant, and although you might not be able to change the organization, um, usually I, I still will put up a certain wall of resistance in the sense that, uh, you know, someone says, you know, we want this change. No problem, that's fine. Uh, you know, we should have a change review to evaluate the impact. No, no, we don't have time for that. We don't do that here. No problem. I still want to sign off from you as the sponsor indicating that you're accepting this change as is and that we will apply it to the project. And in there, you're also acknowledging that this could change time, cost, or quality. And, you know, if we're not going to have a change review and we're not going to evaluate this, fine. I want formal acceptance and an acknowledgement that these three dimensions of the project will probably be affected, either one or all. And and once again, you keep doing this. You keep imposing documentation. Uh, and once again, it's, it's the old CYA game is what it really comes down to. But if you keep running yourself at a professional level of, of, of standards and minimum, minimum governance, what you're going to find uh, very quickly, in, in my experience anyways, is the rest of the organization, people will start to stand up, usually the senior stakeholders, and say, wow, you know, Steve had a risk log, and he said something here could go really bad, you know, if, if this event happened. And sure enough, that event happened. It started to go bad, but Steve also had a response plan on standby, and it worked. And very quickly, you'll find organizations, once they see the real value, uh, they, they, they quickly will start to adopt it. Uh, the, the biggest problem is, and let's be honest, project management is one of the most boring subjects out there next to accounting uh, in, in a lot of people's minds. And they don't see a lot of value. They perceive it as being just purely a cost with little value added and a lot of overhead. And uh, what you have to do is turn it into a practical exercise. And this goes back to, once again, just enough project management and just enough governance for the degree of complexity and work that's being done. Well, I think a good point there, uh, Steve, as well, is that you know many of us, and, and that, the question came from Will, who's my partner in the uh, wealthyprofessional.ca website, so thanks, Will, for for that. Uh, is many companies just you know do risk management or uh, you know keep track of issues or changes really in, really informal? They may scratch it down on a notepad or. Uh, and one of the things that I have uh, learned, uh, Steve, in my time is we got to take this stuff seriously, and and you have to, you know. Make sure that your clients are totally aware of the risks that uh, can happen if they don't if they don't go in a certain piece of technology or a process to do things. Uh, what happens if they walk in and want to change the project halfway through? And I always revert back to home builders. Home builders are wonderful at managing projects. You know, you you get an eight nine month uh, home building project on the go, and they they got it pretty much down. Uh, and in my in my practice or standard or the way I uh, people I've dealt with in the past, is that that's one industry that gets it. But, you know, many of us as IT professionals really just do it loosey-goosey. We, we yep. have no idea. And so that's one of the lessons we've learned in our business. We document everything. And we've actually walked away, Steve, from business that do not fit into the way we do projects and want us to fly off the seat of their pants and think that, you know, they get a competitive competitive bid for you know, two or three thousand dollars cheaper than we're going to do the project for, but the real underlying gotcha there is, at the end of it, it ends up costing them more. 
Definitely, and th- that, that's you know the old, it's the old adage: why do it right when you can do it over? You know, it, it's it, it's it's sarcastic, but but basically that's what it comes down to. Is a lot of organizations think, well, yeah, we'll just slip it through. We can do this. We can do that. And you know, for the for the sake of a little bit of analysis, um, they um, they instead shoot themselves in the foot and end up paying a lot more than if they had done it right to begin with. Uh, one example of that: one of my former clients, and I, I won't say who. But they had what they perceived as a simple project. They were just going to take a whole bunch of Java code that was running on a Unix platform, and because they didn't like Unix, they decided they were going to port it all over to a Windows-based platform. And this this is in a financial services sector, this this company. And uh, they could therefore keep all their Windows specialists, and uh, they would do this port within about 12 to 18 months. They'd do it for a couple million dollars and walk away, and everyone would be happy. That project has been going on now for almost four, four and a half years. It's now 35 to $40 million in the hole. And they could have basically bought a team of Unix specialists for the cost that they put into managing this, this project. It was like a last-minute decision. Let's go to Windows. Let's avoid Unix. Let's not bother analyzing this. And it's not bad to do a risk analysis. And, of course, look where they are today. So, Steve, I don't know if we've talked about managing expectations. Maybe we have, but uh, maybe not 100% direct. How important is it to manage expectations, both from your business and also your clients' expectations? Well, you know, managing expectations is really something you find yourself doing all the time as a project manager. It's sort of coupled there with sort of the risk management, the issue management, even even the, the you know the scope definition right at the early stages of the project. And right from the beginning, you want to get down to clearly defined deliverables. And you know this is where you use the sort of smart concept. You know, is it? Uh, <coughs> pardon me, just give me a second here. But uh, you, you want to make certain that it's. Uh, my God, now this is embarrassing. I'm in the middle of a discussion. I've already uh, forgotten the SMART uh, acronym. Let me just make sure I've got it. The same as SMART goals, like uh, simple, measurable, achievable. Exactly, exactly. You know, is it, um, can it be uh, simple, measurable, achievable, realistic, realistic, and is there there time constraint on it? Like, you know, uh, because if you don't give a clear time uh, window forth, then of course it's it's not practical, and uh, you know this is this starts right at the at the when you're defining the deliverables. But likewise, you know as you're going along, you've got to manage expectations in terms of potential risk. What are the unknowns that we have to deal with? Is there something that has a random or variable element to it? Along the same lines, you also manage opportunity that way as well, and the process for managing both are, are very very effective. Uh, the the other problem we find in a lot of projects is that as they are proceeding. Uh, people always want to report them as green. They never want to report a project as being in trouble, which is complete nonsense. Uh, projects do run into trouble. Projects do go yellow. Projects do go red in terms of status. And what you want to do is establish what are the criteria for that. And what what's more important isn't that the project is red as much as what's my plan for getting it out of the red? What's my plan for making it stable again and getting it on track, on time, with the right level of quality and uh, cost? And, and once again, in North America, we have this aversion to saying things are in trouble, whereas you know, if we bypass that aversion and put more effort instead into working on the response plan, we'd be much further ahead. Okay, that's that's great. And you know, Steve, one of the things in the in the small business uh, community that you know, again, the show's geared towards, is the old concept of billing per hour or doing flat rate projects. And we have moved over in our company to a flat rate concept. And we still do the odd per hour for those 
clients that we're dealing with that can't, you know, that don't see the the value of the flat rate and ends up actually, you know, coming back to costing them more. Yeah. Um, you know, as a small business IT consultant, should I be looking at staying on the bill, billable per hour or why should I switch over maybe doing the flat rate type projects? Well, you know, it really comes down to first, uh, you know, flat rate versus hourly can work to the advantage or disadvantage of either the customer or the vendor, depending on the number of situations. As a vendor, as a, as a, as a small business service provider, uh, flat rate, if you have a well-defined product or well-defined service or a really good team that's uh, built this particular solution that you need for this project before, then flat rate is an excellent way to go because you know what to expect. You can usually set yourself apart from other players in the industry, and as long as you have certain clauses in place in case of unusual situations or contingencies, uh, you're okay. But the other critical element there, and, and this is where the risk comes in, is that flat rate is great from the customer standpoint as well in the sense that they know what they're going to be billed, but if the scope isn't well-defined, or if your client is uh, intent on making regular changes, even small changes, and then that's something we should talk about as well if you want to note that, is how we manage changes in, in terms of the project methodology I've been developing, um, then flat rate becomes a real risk for the vendor, unless, of course, you've got provisions in place to, to, to lock down that scope and ensure that you've got some sort of scope management plan or change management plan in place. Now, the hourly standpoint, once again, great for the vendor, because, you know, every time you're living and breathing and doing anything for the project, you're always going to be compensated. You know, obviously, you bill at a rate that covers your cost plus margins, and, and you're doing well. From the client standpoint, the advantage to the hourly is that if they want to slow down or change the speed of a project, throw more resources or take resources away, they always know what it's going to cost to make those kinds of variations or changes. And then, once again, if they don't have well-established scope, time and materials and costs build that way is often effective. But it's very risky for them because if the vendor really isn't that gifted at producing the end result or if the vendor has... Um, if the vendor is uh, uh, maybe slow or has other issues, uh, then uh, once again, there's a risk for the client that they could wind up paying a lot more for a product because they don't really have a clear view of what the price really should be. Okay, you mentioned the you mentioned changes, Steve, and I think that's very important. Kind of was one of the things on my on my list is the importance of managing changes, especially yeah, especially if you're doing a flat rate. We have a change management uh, process in place. That uh, prevents uh, our projects from being sidetracked or going, you know, off the off the end goal. Uh, what can we do as a small business IT professional to manage changes in the projects that we're doing? One one of the things I like to do is right from the onset, uh, as soon as the objectives of the project and the requirements of the project are defined, I start working on what's called a traceability matrix, where I, I build a matrix that says, okay, from the the idealized objectives to the requirements, eventually to the list of deliverables and products until the tests and use cases if they exist and so on. All those elements are all mapped together. You have this cross-reference table that you built. And you've got to have really clearly defined deliverables or be prepared to continue to define, define them as you go along. But w what's essential is that as there are changes in the project, even changes that aren't necessarily due to the project itself, but perhaps due to environmental factors, what you do is you log the change events, okay? And they could be relatively minor things. It could be a change in industry regulation requirements. You know, GST is now 5% uh, uh, instead of 6%. Does that affect us? Well, maybe it does. 
But the other thing you want to do is change events could eventually become change requests once you realize they've reached a certain threshold that says, wow, uh, no, we, we, we need to actually request more time or more money to compensate for this change in scope or change in time or some other element of the project that's different from when we said, okay, that's it, build our plan from here, this is our baseline, and all our costing and uh, activities are based from this baseline or this line in the sand that we've drawn. And, and there's no shame in having changes. Changes occur. There's nothing wrong with that. But what, where you get killed, and I learned this the hard way, is that you can have a whole bunch of these little minor change events. Hey, can we have it painted red instead of blue? Yeah, we can do that. Can we have it just, can we have two of them instead of just, just uh, three? Okay, or can we order an extra extra couple bags of this and a couple parts of this for spares? Yeah, yeah, it all fits within the budget. What happens is after all of these little things that all should fit comfortably within the contingency come together, you discover suddenly you're over budget and you have no basis for creating a change request to request additional funding because no one's logged all of these relatively minor or no-cost or low-cost changes. And, and this is where a lot of small companies get killed. So you've got to track all of these little things, even if they're perceived as low cost or no cost, because you know one little poke on the to- on the spinning top might make it start to wobble later on, or the cumulative effect of all of these little no cost things actually lead to a real cost by the time you reach the bottom line. And another critical component, Steve, I've had in my own uh, journeys as an IT consultant is when I was doing project work in, in back in the day. It was the fact that we do we do everything in, we get it all installed and working, and we would take care of the client's changes and the, the requests that they would make during the project. And then it came to billing. Mm-hmm. And then we had a fight on our hands because the the project came in two or three thousand dollars more than we originally estimated. So the importance of keeping documentation and keeping track of all these little requests and changes is critical especially to the one, two, three-man operations that uh, don't have the resources to go and battle invoices, and normally what happens is they end up settling anyways because uh, they didn't keep proper documentation, yep. and it ends up killing them and hurting their business. Uh, it's very important to keep change records, and if you're even if you don't have a formal change management process, you know what, hey, we all got laptops, we all know how to use Word or OneNote or something like that. Keep, a, keep track of all these things and, and who authorized and who requested. What we, We've gone to the, the other extreme now, Steve, in our business, is that we actually have a change management form that we force the customer yep. to sign when they make these requests because it gives us a reason to fall back and say, you know what, you're, we're two or $3,000 now above the budget for the project. Here's the bill. And here's why we're billing you for the extra. Or we have a change management process and that we can take to maybe the, the CEO or the president, because we're getting small business, we're dealing usually with the business decision makers and the owners of the company anyways. And they know Joe in the accounting wants us to do this a little differently. Are you okay with us? Can we get your sign-off? Because it comes down to you know what you said earlier, CYA, to me, which means cover your assets, which... <laughs> You know, you don't want to end up giving away the farm here, and especially as IT professionals, and a lot of people listen to this program are small business specialists. That means there's, you know, usually under 10 people in the company. And we do have people that are over that, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, it, it ends up costing the bottom line, which is a direct impact on what you take home at the end of the day out of your company. 
Anything else we can elaborate on there, Steve? Yeah, well, there's a couple elements there. I mean, certainly the change management side of this, has, as we've been talking about, is, is essential. But there's also just this regular tracking. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of organizations don't use their scheduling tools for anything more than just building a calendar of activities. But uh, I'll tell you, there's something to be said for calculating what the total work effort should be at any given point in a project plan and looking at that and comparing it to how much effort's been expended and also what your project budget is. Uh, because, you know, if you're coming to the customer at the last minute when everything is done and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we need a few extra grand, um, no one should be surprised by that. They, they really should already have some idea as it's approaching, hey, we're probably going to be over budget because this activity and this activity is taking more time or is costing us more than we originally expected. I'm not suggesting anyone do necessarily a full earned value analysis, which is a, a complex way of comparing planned costs and scheduling against actual uh, results. But uh, you know, we can all build a simple budget sheet that says, look, this is what we expected to, sp- to spend by this date, and we've in- ended up expending 10% more. And uh, you know, that, that, that's critical. Uh, and and it, you know that goes down to also management of expectations. You know that we were talking about, and and reporting accurately, and tracking is is another key element to being able to manage those expectations. So, what kind of software do you use, Steve? What, or what do you recommend for people that are doing project management? Um, you know, a lot of people. You know, it's funny. I keep seeing in in sort of the ad hoc project management shops that they just try and manage their projects with either milestone lists that they've put together, you know, on a, either on a spreadsheet or Word, or they actually use uh, something like Excel to build these Gantt charts, these sort of uh, horizontal uh, graphs over time that show how the project is going. But to, to, to be quite honest, even though it's got a bit of complexity to it, uh, even though it's not the most complex or high-end project management tool, Microsoft Project does pretty much 90% of what most people would ever need in terms of scheduling and tracking. And, you know, you can even do a lot of your cost management in there, too. Okay. And being a Microsoft partner, I would I totally agree with you on that comment. So. It's, it's not the perfect tool. Don't get me wrong. But I'll tell you, it does, like I say, 80 to 90%. And, you know, that 80 to 90% is probably all you really need. Um, the other thing, those, of course – Sorry. sorry. For those, also, just before you get on to the other thing there – for those partners that are out there that are unfamiliar with uh, Windows SharePoint services, there's some basic uh, um, project management uh, Gantt charts and things that are in there built into the template. So something else you may want to check in as well as uh, Windows SharePoint services. Anyway, Steve, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, that's quite right. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, SharePoint has started adding that. There's a lot of groupware packages out there. Uh, that do that, uh, but from you know from the core tools that a project manager needs, you know an integrated suite like Microsoft Office works nicely just because uh, you know I can embed uh, documents in each in the files of each other, so like for instance, when I give a project status report uh, to people, you know I usually produce that in word, but i 've embedded in the spreadsheet from my project budget and i 've embedded in a copy of the project schedule so that that works really well. The next thing after that is some sort of groupware environment where the entire team can find what we like to call a single central repository of the truth. And this is where um, you know customer requirements documents are contained there, design documents are contained there, uh, the project schedule, updates, status reports are all contained there. SharePoint is a great tool for that. There's a number of other products as well. But what's important is that even if it's just a shared network drive, everyone has a access to a central repository, and everyone uses that. So you don't have 
uh, you know, the worst case scenario, which is, you know, different different copies of requirements documents or different versions on different developers' machines because each person's got whatever the last email was that they received sitting on their hard drive. You've got to break that cycle. Uh, for small projects, yeah, you can get away with that. But as soon as you're doing anything that's prone to change or prone to refinement, uh, you've got to get everyone going to a central repository somehow. And the nice thing about using something like uh, WSS or Microsoft Office SharePoint Server is when you're managing your own projects, you can actually take that and show it to your clients and actually probably make some extra sales or, or things around that when you're actually demoing how you're using it. And so keep that in mind as well when you're, when you're looking at SharePoint or project management software or anything like that. Yeah. Steve, you know, we talked about pre, uh, before we went live on the show about how we're going to fill up an hour. <laughs> we have 15 minutes left. So let's, th- let's talk about what you got on the go here with Small PM. What's all that about? Well, Small C Consulting is is my business, and one of the things that, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is I find a lot of clients say, "Well, we're a project we're a project shop," and they have no methodology, and or they have a ridiculous one, like they're using like Project for Dummies, Project Management for Dummies, or they have, uh, you know, they're using Pimbok, like the encyclopedia, versus actually having a novel. And what I've been working on for a few years now is a is a simple set, well, relatively simple set, uh, of of clearly defined workflows that say, okay, here are the types of teams you should have for the majority of projects. You have some sort of technical design team. You have some sort of delivery team that actually built it. You have a project manager. You have a you know, project admin or project control officer. And this is how they handle information during the different stages of a project, from pre-initiation where someone's still deciding if they're going to have a project, to the actual initiation where, it's, where, it's, where it begins, the planning, the execution, how do you monitor and control it and ultimately close it. And, and with this, uh, you know, we've got these workflows that say, okay, this is how you handle the information or how, you, how, how things get passed around between the different uh, uh, advisors or controllers, but it also comes with a set of templates uh, some are simplified uh, for the um, uh, for those really small projects. Other ones are a little bit more ominous or somewhat larger for the more complex projects that require more governance. But it, it's a complete project management framework. And uh, like I said, I've been working on that for about six years. And uh, what we're doing is that it's being released. Uh, originally, it was mid-April. It's been a little bit delayed. It's in the latter part of April. But it's being released openly and publicly on the Internet. So that anyone can adopt it. So where can we find that information once it's ready? Well, if you go to uh, www.small, word small, hyphen pm.com, so small-pm.com, that's the home website for this. And, in fact, what, uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, people have the ability they can register to become a member of the site so that they have a vehicle that we can bring them back or send them out announcements or give them access to materials and stuff. And uh, what's going to be happening over the next few weeks is there will be a, an initial release of just a raw PDF uh, baseline version of small PM. And then uh, the next steps after that is uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're adopting what we call open process as opposed to open source for software. We're creating an open process environment where theoretically anyone who's a member can go in and modify or provide input or comments into the, the initial framework, the project management framework. And what we want to do is gather the collective wisdom of the community and sort of create the next iteration of small PM as, as it goes forward from this baseline model that we're going to release to a fully online collaborative edition. So, yeah, so your own little open source community then. 
Exactly. But instead of being software, it's open process. But it's still the open source concept. Make it available to everyone. Everyone provides input. Get the best of breed based upon the community wisdom. Well, I'm just on the website right now. I'm going to register later on, so make sure uh, you'll see my name in there very soon. Fantastic. And one of the things we're going to be doing uh, in the next uh, week or so prior to the release of uh, Small PM is uh, going to put down a couple samples of the workflow diagrams, uh, a couple of the critical templates that people often need, like a uh, probably a template for a uh, scope document, template for a change request, and then uh, the uh, the next uh, the issue log, of course. And then, of course, the next step after that is getting the sort of static PDF version of Small PM out and then following with the wiki-based version that's designed so that people can take apart the individual components and provide their input. Well, not only do we have this program here to, to formally announce that to the small business IT community, which is great, we'll also make it available through some of our blogs. So make sure you check out uh, some of our blogs at the uh, main one for SBSC.ITSuccessMentor.com. Uh, we're still looking. We're still. We're actually running a contest on that, Steve, trying to figure out a good uh, URL for that for that site. So as it stands right now, it's sbsc.itsuccessmentor.com. Okay. That's our small business specialist blog that we run uh, here in uh, for small business specialists in Canada, and we'll make sure we uh, help spread the word there. That'd be fantastic. So last, last little bit of the show here, Steve. Anything, anything that we missed that you may want to you know, you know, reinforce that point or reinforce a point or anything that we missed. Definitely. One, one, one of the things, like if you're familiar with sort of the classic defined processes uh, in PMBOK, they talk about at the same time that you're sort of uh, doing your monitoring controlling of a project when you're defining your scope, there's also this other process called scope verification. And we normally assume that happens at the end where we uh, sort of conduct the, the uh, final acceptance test with the customer. One of the things that often gets missed, however, is as you're defining the scope of the project and defining the deliverables, that's the perfect time to also define the tests for acceptance. And once again, this could be for any industry. You know, what is the minimum acceptance criteria for uh, a new building that's been constructed or the minimum acceptance criteria for a piece of software or for a system. It could be performance-based. It could be standards-based. It could be look and feel. But if you're going to define what the deliverables should be, you might as well at the same time also define the criteria for testing and accepting it because you'll discover that by having those two endpoints defined, the work in the middle where you're actually doing the build will go a lot faster and easier. Oh, great. So that's that's wonderful, Steve. And um, you know, I'm, I've been listening to the program live uh, uh, this morning or this afternoon for those on the west, on the east coast, or I've downloaded it um, on my MP3 player, and I'm really inspired of what you had to tell me. Uh, what services are available that if I wanted to con- contract you out to help us with, pro- with projects, or you know, do you do any uh, training around projects, Steve, that people can uh, you know do over the web or maybe over the phone or in person? Do you have that service available to people? Well, I have been doing some training. Uh, I, uh, I have to admit I have to start training some more staff for the organization, but uh, I myself have been involved with training. Uh, I uh, certainly help organizations with their projects. I'm available on, on individual consultation. And uh, although we've offered a few courses here and there, uh, in reality what I want to do is wait until we sort of get the next refinement of small PM uh, complete. And uh, this fall 
I'm hoping to more aggressively offer either uh, online courses or alternatively organizations can contract to uh, to have myself or, or one of my uh, one of my PMs uh, come out there and help an organization either understand small PM, receive training for their PMs themselves, or even look at a consultation to uh, look at how to change the organization. Because this is more than just simply you know handing a, a methodology to a PM and say run with it. it. It really involves changes within the organization because the executive management has to understand their role in, for instance, approving of ch- approving of change requests or their role as project sponsors and uh, helping with the governance of a project. So it, there is a bit of uh, change, organizational change that's necessary. It's not just simply running with a manual. So the best way to reach you, Steve, is through um, the small-pm site? or well, Small-pm is for the methodology, and you could go there, uh, or you can go to our main website, uh, small-c, small-c.com, and uh, that's the letter C, by the way. And, and that comes from a joke where you know, you'd say you, you'd say you're a consultant, and they'd always ask, "Well, is that a small C consultant or a big C consultant?" The idea being the big C was like you know somewhere from IBM or System House when they were still around, whereas the small C consultant was the independent consultant like myself. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny because there's different qualities and different levels of work that you get. Uh, between the two, and uh, it's hard sometimes to really compare them. And there are definitely some advantages to the small C consultant over the big C and vice versa, depending on the situation. So the takeaways for today is make sure you go to small-pm.com and register for when uh, that community uh, gets fired up and and uh, get some great information there. Again, it's a good open-source uh, environment, uh, open-process environment, uh, however you want to uh, name it, where you can get out there and uh, and share in the community on process uh, and project management and how we do things, uh, getting our projects out there. And it'll be great because you can maybe get a different perspective from people that are maybe in the airline industry to IT industry. It's going to be open to Steve. It's going to be open to m- multiple type of PMs. Is that correct? Yeah. That's, now, initially, we're coming up with this as a sort of a static baseline. That says here's a generic project management model. But as it evolves, what I want to see is uh, ideally, it'd be nice if it could be standard for everyone. You know, based upon the categorization scheme. Real life doesn't work that way. Uh, what we're probably going to wind up doing is coming out with an IT variant of small PM versus, say, a construction industry variant versus something, say, for you know, uh, special operations and you know, doing humanitarian relief missions or something of that nature. A variety of different industries and scenarios will be out there, and uh, either we'll come out with a modification table that says this is how you do it, or more likely we'll come out with a specific flavor for each sort of type of, of major industry. Well, the nice thing about being in a community like that is that you can uh, get information maybe from a humanitarian agency that you can actually put into your small business IT practice. There's always good flow of information, different ideas that come out of any different type of industry that we can, that we can practically apply uh, in in the business that we're in. Definitely. Anyway, Steve, I want to thank you for taking time out of your over your lunch hour in Montreal. I'm going to be out there in a few weeks, so I look forward to maybe linking up with you. Definitely. Uh, That'd be good. And uh, it'll be great to, uh, to touch base with you again. And uh, thank you very much for uh, your time today. Just a reminder for everybody who regularly listens to our program here on blogtalkradio.com, we uh, have some ex- like very exciting shows coming up. Uh, next week we're going to be live from the conference floor at SMB Summit in Dallas. Again, if you're uh, an IT consultant and you haven't registered yet, you got till 10 o'clock Pacific time today to Register for SMB Summit and get that $100 uh, discount using the promo code SMB Webcast. Uh, that expires today. 
So we're going to be live on the floor at SMB Summit uh, next Friday. Uh, and in a couple weeks, we're going to be joined by Mary Crane. And Mary's out of New York. And Mary was interviewed by, I think it was CBS News not too long ago, about the millennials. So we've got a show dedicated to the millennials and how to work with millennials and what they're going to do to our industries and you know all that stuff that the younger generation wants when they're coming to work for us. So I'll be on uh, on April 25th, and coming up uh, as well as some other shows planned, we're going to have Ken Thorson coming up on May the 9th. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, sales management and how they can succeed, or how your sales managers can succeed out there. And on May the 2nd, we're going to be talking with Microsoft Learning Partners on the importance of uh, having a, a good CPLS partner, somebody you can partner with for learning to help your team grow uh, with training as well as a resource for your clients to come to for uh, education and uh, other types of training uh, when it comes to their IT uh, tech and technology. So that's on May 2nd, and we'll have Wendy Callahan from uh, Nexian and a few others on, and Ken Thorson on May 9th, Mary Crane on April the 25th. And, of course, next week will be uh, from the trade show floor, the conference floor at SMB Summit, so who knows who's going to be joining us. We'll get people as we see them walking by coming and joining us. So I want to thank you all for tuning in to Small Business IT Radio again on Blog Talk Radio. This is Stuart Crawford. Uh, we're signing off for today. We'll see you guys all next week from SMB Summit in Dallas. Have yourself a great uh, week, and we'll talk to you all next week.